Good morning. Good to be with all of you this morning. Let's open our Bibles together to 1 Corinthians 15, please. 1 Corinthians 15. It's often been called the resurrection chapter in the Bible because it was written to correct doctrinal error in the church at Corinth. There was a lack of faith in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and there were false teachers that were impacting the church, and so the Apostle Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to write this book, this first letter, and chapter 15 focuses on that theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Follow with me as I read verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all." Last month, uh, my wife and I did something we've never done before. We never thought we would be old enough. We purchased cemetery plots. Yes, I know, we look like we're in our 30s still. But you know, you can never plan too early. But it's true, we bought three burial plots for ourselves and one of our daughters who Uh, We'll never be able to live on her own due to multiple disabilities. And um, when the deed arrived in the mail, I laughed out loud. You may wonder why. Well, I do enjoy walking in cemeteries, by the way. How many of you enjoy walking in cemeteries? Such a quiet place. The neighbors never bother you. You can talk to yourself all you want, and no one answers back. It's, it's wonderful. That's an aside. But I really did laugh. Why? Well, because it says something like this on the deed. <clears throat> on this day, Paul and Karen Touches paid X amount of money for three burial plots at Maple Hill Cemetery in the town of Munson in the county of Geauga in the state of Ohio. Plots numbered 13, 14, and 15 belong to them and theirs Forever. And I laughed. Forever? Not a chance, Mr. Maple. I'm not going to be there forever. It's going to be a temporary holding place 
all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The Bible teaches us that if the Lord Jesus does not return before we die, our souls will go immediately into the presence of God. They will then move our bodies to that little piece of real estate in Geauga County. But these graves will not be ours forever. They will not be ours forever. One day, our bodies will be raised in glory and reunited with our souls to forever live with our Savior. And the reason for this is simple. Jesus Christ rose from the grave. It's that simple. One day the body of every believer in Christ will be raised to everlasting life. The tombs will open, the bodies will be raised, souls will rejoin the body to go into the very presence of the Lord and forever to be with the Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the promise of God in Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's good news. It's not bad news that he died only because three days later he rose from the grave. If he had never risen, then it would be still bad news that the Son of God died. Because if he was not alive, he could not save us. If the body of Jesus had remained in the tomb, then there would be no good news. For what good can a dead Savior accomplish? What life can a dead Savior give to anybody else? A dead spiritual leader can only influence people after his death by his life's example, which is kept in memory and perhaps through writings. But a spiritual leader who died and rose again has the power to give that same life to all those who are connected to him by faith. That's the key. We must be connected to Jesus Christ by faith in order to spend eternity with God. Jesus Christ died in our place. He took the punishment that our sins deserved, but three days later, he rose again. And this same hope of resurrection is for those who believe in his name. Jesus promised this in John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. It's a promise from the lips of the Son of God. So without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no good news. There is no Christianity. There is no salvation. There is no life if you do not have a living Savior. But we do have a living Savior. And the gospel is this. 
Paul says, look back at uh, verse three verses of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. So this is the good news, Paul says, and you received it, and in that good news you stand. In other words, it's that message, that gospel that you are believing in, that you are standing on for the hope of eternal life and by which you are being saved. This is the message that saves. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. The gospel message is of first importance, top priority. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the historical facts of the gospel are that the Son of God became man, and as a man, he went to the cross as the Lamb of God. He died in our place. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved, and he did this all in accordance with the Scriptures. And we heard a bunch of those Scriptures on Friday night, Isaiah 53 in particular, So many scriptures that foretold of the one who would die for our sins. And Paul says then he was buried, which is also according to the scriptures, and that he rose from the dead. All of this was predicted through the writings, the scriptures, Paul says. The writings that they had at this point were the Old Testament scriptures. So the Old Testament scriptures were filled with this hope and this promise. And these facts of history, the truthfulness of them is confirmed, Paul says, by the testimony of multitude of witnesses. And he goes on to name them. Peter, the 12, more than 500 believers at the same time saw the resurrected Christ. James, all of the apostles, and then he says, last of all, me, Paul. The whole point here is that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. So the big idea this morning is this. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ proves his death was sufficient and secures eternal life for all who embrace him by faith. If the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary had not met every demand of the righteous judge of heaven, God would have left him in the tomb. But he didn't. He rose him from the grave to give a public testimony, the biggest billboard you can imagine, to shout to the world that what he did Friday night on that cross was acceptable to God the Father. Our sins were fully paid for. Therefore, we don't then live a life of paying for our own sins. 
doing penance for our sins. Instead, we repent and we believe in the one who already did it all for us. That's the difference between works religion and biblical Christianity, salvation by faith. Look at verse 20. Paul says, For as by a man, excuse me, uh, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised. So in, in contrast to these false ideas that were being propagated, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn of the dead, Paul says. In verses 20 through 28, we see two guarantees that are secured by the resurrection. Number one, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of our future resurrection body. Jesus called himself the firstborn of the dead in Revelation 1. Here, Paul calls him the first fruits or the first installment with the guarantee of more to come. This is an agricultural illustration. It's the same one that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy 2.6 when he says, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. In other words, it is the guy who's been working the fields. It is the, the, the gal who's been working the garden who should get to taste the first fruits of that garden because they did the work. Some of you are gardeners. I know my wife is a gardener. She loves to play in the dirt. She's never outgrown that and she never will. And when that first tomato ripens, she brings it in the house and she shows me it's the first tomato. And she gets to share in the first fruits because she did all the work. But that first ripe tomato is a signal that there are many more to come. It's the first fruits. I remember the first time I started to learn this concept. I think I was maybe in second grade. And I remember bringing home from school a bunch of these clear uh, cups with dirt and bean seeds planted in them. And the teacher told me, you know, how I was supposed to take care of those bean seeds. And I was able to put them in the window and watch them. And each day, each day, and finally seeing seeing the roots begin to sprout, and then something comes up the top and out of the ground. And when that bean sprout was strong enough and it was warm enough outside in Wisconsin... We planted them in the dirt. I still remember those long yellow wax beans pulling the first ones off. There were more to come. Maybe some of you kids have brought projects like that home from school or you've helped your mom or dad plant seeds and watch those seeds grow. You did the work. You get to enjoy the first fruits. Jesus did the work. Jesus did the greatest work of all. And he tasted the first fruits, being the first one to rise from the dead. 
So Paul says the resurrection of Jesus was the first fruits of many more to come. That is, many more who would be risen from the grave. So Jesus' resurrection was more than simply his coming back to life. It was the down payment. It was the guarantee of all future resurrections. Wayne Grudem says it this way, the resurrection of Jesus was a new kind of human life, a life in which his body was made perfect, no longer subject to weakness, aging, or death, but able to live eternally. The very body of Jesus rose from the grave. A glorified body, never to taste death again, never to be subject to any weakness. He overcame sin through the resurrection. Why was this so significant? Well, verse 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Through his resurrection, Jesus resolved the problem created by Adam. Uh, Look back with me at, at Romans chapter 5. Just turn back one book to the left in your Bible. Romans 5 gives us this beautiful comparison between the first Adam, Adam created in the Garden of Eden, and who is called the second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Notice the contrast. Notice what Adam brings into the world and what the second Adam brings into the world. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So Adam and Eve were representatives of the human race. Adam in particular was the the covenant head of the human race. And so when he sinned against God, all of us who are descendants of him, all of us who are related to him, sinned. God counted his sin to be against the whole human race because Adam was the covenant head of the human race. And so death reigned from Adam to Moses, it says in verse 14, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, sin reigned in all human beings even though they didn't sin in exactly the same way that Adam sinned. Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was the covenant head of the human race and a type of another man who would come Who is that? Well, let's read verse 15 and find out. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. So just as Adam 
brought sin and death into the world, so Jesus brought righteousness and life to those who will be connected to him by faith. We are all connected to Adam by virtue of our birth. No choice in the matter. We then choose to sin after that because of the nature that's in us. But being connected to Jesus Christ doesn't happen automatically. There must be a moment in time in which you are converted, in which you turn from sin and trust in this all-sufficient Savior to rescue you, to give you this promise of eternal life. It is, notice, the free gift by the grace. The free gift three, four times, actually five times in 15, 16, and 17. It's called a free gift. Not something that you and I can work for. Not something that you and I can be good enough to receive. That's what grace is. Grace is a gift that we could never be good enough to deserve. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass or sin, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Through Adam, we all became sinners because we sinned in and through Adam as the covenant head of the human race. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became man, is also the covenant head. But he's the covenant head of the new covenant of grace and eternal life that is received by faith. What an amazing contrast. And so that's why Paul is saying this, that, that by a man came death, but also by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, I'm back in 1 Corinthians 15 in case I lost you. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All who are connected to Adam will physically die. That's a guarantee. All of us will die. And if, you, if your physical life ends and you are still in Adam spiritually, then not only will you die physically, but you will also die spiritually. You will die eternally. You will face the eternal death. However, the good news is in Christ shall all be made alive. Those who are in Christ shall be made alive. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you and I as sinners come to a place in our life in which we understand our sinfulness before God. And we understand that there's nothing we could ever do to earn his favor and to wipe the slate clean. 
And so we humbly bow before the King of Heaven and we say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. The one who died in my place, the one who rose from the dead, I need you to take all of my sins away. I need you to give me this new life that you promise to give to all who will come to you. Paul then goes on to say, there's an order to this though. But each in his own order, verse 23, Christ, the first fruits. So Christ rose from the dead first. And then there's this gap of time between his death, burial, and resurrection and his second coming. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So the first resurrection is Jesus Christ himself. The second resurrection are all believers in Jesus Christ throughout the world for all time. That's the promise. We will be raised from the grave. Why? Because we identify with the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus Christ. Because we are rescued and saved by his grace. Because we have moved from being merely connected to Adam to now being connected to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You know, I remember when I was in junior high and high school, I knew that Jesus was the Savior of the world. I knew that in my head. I had gone through all the catechism classes. I had, I had passed confirmation. And I knew that Jesus was the Savior of the world. But what I did not know until I was 19 years old is that Jesus died for my sins. Not merely for the sins of the world, but for my sins. Because up until that point, I had considered myself to be a fairly good religious guy. You know, I mean, I I did what the church told me. I confessed some of my sins to the priest. I did what I was told to do outwardly, though inwardly. Great corruption existed. I never made the connection that it was my sins that had nailed Jesus to the cross. When the Holy Spirit took the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which I just explained to you, when the Holy Spirit took that message and opened my spiritual eyes with that, I finally saw who I was and what I was compared to the righteous God, and the Lord brought me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know where any of you are at spiritually with the Lord. God knows your heart. But in a gathering this large, I have to assume that some of you do not yet know Jesus in the way that I just explained. And maybe you are like I was, fairly good kid, through junior high, high school, 
then in college started to really display what was actually going on in the heart. And you think that somehow you can clean up your act. Somehow you can do enough good religious things to outweigh the evil things. Let me just say to you that Jesus says this. He invites you to come and lay down your arms and stop fighting against him and stop trying to carry your sin burden by yourself. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the spiritual rest of the soul that we long for. Without that, we spend our lives chasing after so many different things. I think of all the energy I put into chasing after people to to try and fit into a group in junior high and high school because I was always one of those kind of oddballs who didn't really fit anywhere. And to understand finally that because of Christ and in Christ, I am fully accepted by God not because of anything that I have done, am doing, or could somehow possibly do in the future, but solely because I am banking on the work of the one who did it all for me. And I'm trusting his promise. And I pray that if you're here today and you're not trusting in that promise from the Son of God that the Holy Spirit will just so woo you by the love of God for you to know how much God loves you, that he sent his Son to rescue you, to save you, to adopt you into his family, to give you a forever home someday. This is the hope of the gospel. And Paul says that all who are in Christ will one day be raised because he was raised, each in his own order. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are alive when Jesus returns will not precede those who are already dead in Christ. Christ. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. When Jesus returns, he will raise all believers from the tomb. And they will be reunited with their soul and go to be with God. Let me explain to you how it's described in Second Corinthians 5. Because perhaps you're wondering, okay, so then I'm a Christian, but then what, does, what really happens to me when I die? If my body goes in the ground and I'm waiting until Jesus returns to be raised, then where am I? 
Where is the real me, the soul, the inner person? Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the soul of the believer is in the very presence of God. In the very presence of God. Paul says, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, this tent, this body that you and I are in right now, it's like a tent, but there's something infinitely better. It's a building. A building's better than a tent, isn't it? All you ladies who have gone camping, you say, amen. (laughs) A building is better than a tent. Paul says that when we have put that tent away, we will have put on our heavenly dwelling. Until then, our soul is naked. Doesn't have a body, but it's in the very presence of God. And so when Jesus returns, he raises the bodies from the grave, reunites with the souls, And we shall forever be with the Lord as physical, glorified worshipers of Jesus Christ. We will not be like leaves on a fall day flying through the air. We will have actual glorified bodies like the Lord Jesus had after his resurrection. There's a lot of mystery involved in that, of course, which is wonderful. But what a hope we have that in those incorruptible new bodies, we will live forever with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. And God will have undone the work of Adam and all shall be redeemed. What a hope that is. And the older we get, the more we look to that hope. Isn't that true? Any of you who are like me in your 50s, you, you feel it coming sooner. Your bodies are not what they used to be. But praise God, there's a day coming we will have glorified, incorruptible new bodies that will be like Jesus' resurrection body. There's a second guarantee. Let's move this through this last part rather swiftly. I just want to drive home to you the point that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees his authority to rule God's kingdom. A dead king can't rule a kingdom, but a living king can. Then comes the end, verse 24. After these resurrections, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. At the end, when Jesus conquers all of his physical enemies, He shall deliver the kingdom to God the Father. And even beyond that, 
even all of the spiritual enemies, every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy, look at this, verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the last enemy. And then all will be as God intended it to be before sin entered the world. And God is with his people. And we who know Christ are with him. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And Revelation 20 talks about that. Talks about the devil being uh, bound in the abyss and ultimately thrown into the lake of fire and, and talking about all unbelievers who will also be raised from the dead and their souls which are now in torment will be reconnected with their bodies and they will go to the great white throne judgment and they will be forever judged by God. Why? Because they rejected the only way of salvation. They rejected the only one who could save them. So when the resurrected Christ defeats all of his enemies, sin will be erased from human existence because death will have been defeated. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet, verse 27. But then Paul goes on to say in somewhat of a complicated way, all things are put in subjection to Christ except the one who put it all in subjection. So all is put in subjection except God the Father who gave Jesus the authority. God the Father has given Jesus the authority to rule the kingdom as king. And then all these things, when they are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is a fascinating concept. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons in the Trinity, are equal. They're equal, but there's also an order of authority and submission. The Son submits to the Father. As he really did all throughout his earthly life, Jesus says in John 5, I have come in my Father's name. John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. John 5, 22, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. So we believers the bride of Christ, the church, we are called to live in subjection to him who has placed himself in subjection to God the Father. Why? So that God may be all in all, that the name of God is glorified and proclaimed and lifted up and magnified forever. Because the sin that has 
squelched the glory of God, hidden the glory of God, has been fully conquered. And now the brightness of the glory of God will shine so brightly that Revelation tells us there will be no need for electricity in heaven because all the light will come from the throne of God. God will have undone the work of Adam through the good work of the second Adam. Jesus tells us in John 5 that every person who has ever lived on the face of this planet will be raised one day, not just Christians, but even non-Christians. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Well, we know Jesus rose first already, Believers in Jesus are the next to rise to life, to live forever. Then non-Christians will be raised to stand before God in judgment. Their resurrection is not a resurrection to eternal life. Their resurrection is one to eternal death. Because they did not believe in the only Son of God. That's bad news. That's the worst possible news. But it doesn't have to become the destiny of anyone in this room today. Eternal death does not need to be the destiny of anyone here today. Because Jesus invites you to receive the gift of eternal life by turning to him by faith and trusting him and saying, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner who could never, ever save myself. I need you to save me. Listen to these glorious words, words of hope to all those who trust in Christ. For all those who turn to Jesus in repentant faith, this is your hope. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold listen I am making all things new also he said write it down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done It is done. It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The thirsty, 
I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. How does God require us to come to him? Without payment. God says, don't come to me trying to impress me with things that you've done for me or that you plan to do for me. Come to me with an empty wallet. No payment. Come to me as a needy beggar who knows that if there is any hope of life, then he or she must receive a gift. A gift from the most gracious hands in the universe. The gracious hands of Christ. So if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, let me just say again, lay down your arms. Stop fighting him. Lay down your confidence in your good works, your own spiritual performance. Come to Jesus with empty hands that are ready to simply receive the gift of eternal life from the only one who is alive and can give it to us. This is the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you this morning for this good news. God, thank you for not giving us a religion whereby we would need to climb ladders and become righteous somehow through our own deeds. For we cannot produce deeds that are righteous enough because our hearts are born sinful away from you. Thank you, Lord, for rescuing us that you saw us dead on the bottom of the ocean, unable to do anything to save ourselves, unable to rescue ourselves. And you did it all. You gave your only begotten Son, who willingly obeyed you and went to the cross as the Lamb of God to be slain for our sins. And three days later, you broadcast to all that what your son did was enough. Forgive us for how often we think it's not enough and we work our fool heads off trying to become right with you when the one who already did that is holding out a gift for empty hands to receive. Holy Spirit, please take these words and work them into the very fabric of our being. Open our spiritual eyes and ears. Move our wills to turn to Christ. Perhaps today for the first time, 
or perhaps even for those who are believers, to turn again to Jesus in praise and thanksgiving for all that he has done to purchase salvation. We give you the glory, Lord. Through Christ we pray. Amen.